Seconds to Live by John Dyson. Trapped in a plummeting plane, Barry Dawson had only four seconds to live. Spurting a cloud of dust behind its tail, the Cessna 208 lurched down the dirt strip and lifted into the blue sky north of Melbourne. Barry Dawson teased the throttle to make the most of the climb rate. Yeah, she's nice, he thought. Slim and wiry, wearing jeans, pullover and stockman's boots, Dawson, 31, had already made ten trips by the early afternoon of April 29, 2001. Now, as the small plane climbed over Victoria's farm country, dotted with lakes and patches of bush, ten skydivers, decked in bright jumpsuits and crash helmets, and crowded together on the floor, waited for the moment to jump. Another sat beside Dawson at the controls. At 14,000 feet, the plane's roller door would be opened, and they'd all make the leap, plummeting on a wild, free-fall ride down to the drop zone at Nagambi. Dawson looked at the scene below. The big iron shed was where jumpers packed their chutes with pop music blaring. Others sprawled in picnic chairs under an awning. Somewhere in the cluster of caravans, his partner, Dawn Howard, had put a Sunday roast into the oven. Dawson felt his own parachute digging into the small of his back. Pilots seldom wore them, but Dawn had had a slim one specially made for him after their daughter Crystal was born. No excuses, just wear it, she insisted, and nagged him until he did. As they reached 11,000 feet, the jumpers got up on hands and knees and began checking each other's equipment. Noise and freezing air blasted into the cabin as the door, made of perspex panels, was slowly rolled up. One minute to go, Dawson shouted, as the altimeter needle on the plane's control panels approached 14,000 feet. The jumpers put on goggles and shuffled into their respective positions. Simon Chaburka, 28, swung onto the small step outside the plane. With a mini-DV camera running on the side of his helmet, Chaburka's task was to film the four members of the fetish skydiving team, who were stacking into position in the doorway. They had been fifth in the last national championships and now were at the end of a week-long camp training for the next one. Stooped on the sill facing inwards, Simon Moline, 31, braced himself against the top of the door. His fellow team members stood in pre-planned positions around him. Lining up to jump after them were a French student with two instructors and two solo jumpers. With one and a half kilometres to run, Dawson throttled the plane back to 80 knots or 148 kilometres per hour. Everything seemed to be going like clockwork. But unnoticed by anyone in the pre-jump tension, the release pin of Moline's reserve parachute was jiggling out of its socket. Dawson turned to Craig Bennett, 38, in the other front seat. Have a good jump, mate. Thanks for the lift, Baz, Bennett said, grinning back at his friend while he unclipped his seatbelt. Now directly over the drop zone, Dawson flicked a switch and the cabin light turned green. As Chaburka leapt from the doorway, something white shot past his face. He looked back and to his horror saw Moline swinging from the tail of the plane. Moline's reserve parachute had opened the instant he made his jump, dragging him out of the plane and fatally injuring him when his head hit the tail. Partly inflated, Moline's parachute now acted as a massive brake on the plane and Bennett instantly slammed into the windscreen, sprawling over the instrument panel. Dawson, thrown forward in his straps, knew straight away what had happened. He prayed that the jumper would free himself from the tail, but instead 
the plane slowed dramatically and began to fall from the sky. Dawson fought the controls, violently twisting the yoke from lock to lock to keep the wings level. Get out! He yelled over his shoulder to the others. Get out! In just 62 seconds, the plane would hit the ground. The five jumpers behind Dawson and Bennett were slammed between sides, floor and ceiling. One ran at the door as if somersaulting into a swimming pool. Another was thrown flat, instructor Nathan Goff on top. Goff got up on his hands and knee, pushed the other man into space, then followed. Meanwhile, in the fuselage near the tail, rivets popped out of their sockets with bangs like gunshots. Cables linked to the control services in the tail snapped one by one. There was a screech of metal ripping apart. Bennett unpeeled himself from the control panel and looked back to see the entire tail section wagging back and forth. With a thunderous bang, the tail broke off. In freefall, Chaburka was descending at 200 kilometres per hour, but the plane suddenly corkscrewed towards him at a much faster speed. Scared of being hit, he arched his body to swerve away. Chaburka had seen most of the team jump seconds before, but as the plane screeched towards Earth, he realised Dawson and possibly others were still inside. Dawson shouted at Bennett to get out while he fought to steady the wings. Bennett sprang towards the door and, momentarily weightless, flew towards it like Superman. Grabbing the edge of the door, he launched himself out, but as the plane spiralled away beneath him, a desperate thought struck. Was Dawson wearing a parachute? 49 seconds. Dawson hit the radio switch. Mayday! 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 But there was no time to wait for an answer. The plane was down to 9,000 feet. Still, Dawson followed procedure, shutting down the engine to turn off the fuel. Now he had to get himself out. Worming out of his seat, Dawson crouched on the instrument panel, looking up at the door three metres above. With no steadying hand at the controls, the plane's rotation immediately increased. At the same time, it flicked almost over on its back, then back again. Stretching for the edge of the door, Dawson sprang, but he was thrown back down. At the same time, he heard a thunderous hollow bang. The roll door had slammed down. He swore loudly. He was shut in, trapped. To make matters worse, he was wedged between the backs of the seats, his feet entangled in the plane's throttles. A searing pain stabbed his ribs on one side. Stunned, he caught his breath. 37 seconds. The centrifugal force of the plane's spin pinned Dawson in place, trapping him as if he were in a huge spin dryer. With a painful twist and a wriggle, he unjammed himself from the seats, but his foot remained stuck. Frantically, Dawson kicked at whatever had an octopus grip on his foot. Precious seconds ticked away as he groped around his boot, trying to free it, then remembered it didn't have laces. He slipped his foot out and focused on the door once more. Flat on the carpet, his feet on the seat backs, Dawson again reached for the door. It seemed he was doing a press-up with a ton on his back. It's no good straining, he thought. I've got to be smart. Attached to rings in the floor were short restraint straps skydivers clipped to their harnesses instead of seatbelts. Using these as handholds, he crawled upwards like a mountaineer. The tumbling plane flipped backwards, abruptly reversing the forces of gravity and tossing him into the air. He gripped a strap with all his strength until he slammed into the carpet again, then resumed his climb. Disoriented, 
He looked for the horizon. Where am I? How long have I got? Blurry through the perspex panels in the door, Dawson saw a dark purple line, the edge of the planet racing up to meet him. He knew immediately he was already down to only 6,000 feet. 24 seconds. With a last-ditch effort, Dawson grabbed the side of the door and held himself in position with one hand while wriggling a couple of fingers under the door with the other. He gave it a heave. The door went up a couple of centimetres, then jammed. I'm gone. Again, he clawed desperately at the door. As it lifted, he got a clear sight of the horizon. Only 4,000 feet. Dawson pushed his fingers out under the door, then his whole palm. With bursts of frantic strength, he jiggled the door upwards. It moved up a couple of centimetres, then chopped down on his wrist. Another push and his forearm was out. Again and it fell into the crook of his elbow. Again and he got his shoulder under it, then heaved upwards. Kicking on the carpet with one boot and one sock, he got his head out. Slipstream blasted his face, tore at his hair, gouged his cheeks. Through eyes swimming with wind tears, he glimpsed the ground. 2,000 feet now, deathly close. Seven seconds. Lying on his back with his head outside, Dawson got his two hands under the door lying across his chest. Pushing up, he caterpillared out from under it. At 1,000 feet, he got clear as the plane fell away from under him. Four seconds. Using skydiving skills, Dawson flipped over to his front, stretching out arms and legs to stabilise himself. He pulled his ripcord. The red and green parachute streamed out behind him and deployed with a snap. Dawson's headlong fall was halted only 500 feet from the ground. Now he was drifting down at a gentle 64 kilometres per hour. He saw frightened faces staring up at him. Some were running for their lives as the plane smashed into the ground and exploded. Twin fireballs leapt towards him, then he heard the terrible sound of the impact. Deftly steering his parachute, Dawson swung behind the column of smoke and landed on his feet, beating all the skydivers to the ground. Gathering his chute, he walked out of the smoke of the wrecked plane with a broken rib, deeply gouged shoulder and missing a boot. People running towards the wreckage hugged him in disbelief. We thought you were dead, they shouted. Dawn spotted him and sobbing with relief, Dawson flung his arms round her. Parachute, save me, he told her. The other jumpers landed safely, loud in their praise for Dawson's skill and courage. Says jumper Nathan Goff, Baz saved our lives. He was awesome. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Murnier. Sound production by Ricky Price. Music